from the Credit Union National Association. This is the CUNA News Podcast. Credit Union people. Credit Union ideas. Bloomberg-listed behavioral scientist is the top job of this decade because it is so important to understanding human behavior as it relates to our daily habits, 99% of which are unconscious. It combines the best of economics, psychology, and neuroscience. I'm Ron Jose, Senior Editor with CUNA News. In this episode of the CUNA News Podcast, consultant, behavioral economics expert, and author Melina Palmer provides us with a new understanding of behavioral science and economics. More importantly, she explains how we can use behavioral science to improve our organizations and day-to-day lives. Palmer is not only a behavioral economist, she's also a former credit union employee. In our interview, she shares how insights and tools from behavioral science can be applied to a credit union's culture and business practices. You'll learn how the brain really works when faced with change in making decisions. Understanding how the brain works helps us understand our own misjudgments, and in the process, we become more perceptive, more self-aware, and even a little smarter. Marlena, thanks for joining us today. You're a behavioral economist, but you have a credit union background. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. Yeah. So uh, my going back a little bit further, my undergrad is in business administration with a focus in marketing. And I ended up uh, working at a credit union in Seattle and ran the marketing department there for about six years and was part of Filene's I3 program and uh, just really all in in the credit union space and people helping people and all of that. And while I had been in my undergrad, like I mentioned from before, uh, it was something where there was, you know, one little class that had a tiny section about buying psychology and why people do the things they do. And I thought it was just the most amazing thing. And I spent 10 years looking for a program that I could get a master's in that and had a lot of universities tell me that it didn't exist, that um, that wasn't a thing and kind of too bad. So while I was actually in the I3 program, they brought in some people from the Center for Advanced Hindsight out of Duke University, which is their behavioral economics department. And I realized this is the thing I had been looking for. So I got a master's in behavioral economics and then transitioned into doing consulting full-time and the brainy business and podcasts and books and all the things that have, have come from that that I'm sure we'll talk about more today. Uh, as you said, the, the discipline didn't exist and we'll get back into that a little later. And do you want to tell us about your work now and even how you still connect with credit unions? Sure, yeah. So uh, I am an applied behavioral economist. So the first thing to note is kind of what behavioral economics even is. It is a mix. I like to say that if traditional economics and psychology had a baby, we would have behavioral economics. So it really is that traditional economics assumes logical people making rational choices in everything that they do. And that's not really the world that we live in with humans and things like that. And uh, so those models were wrong. They didn't accurately predict behavior. They were predicting what we think people should do versus what they actually do. And that is where behavior behavioral economics over time help to determine how the brain really makes decisions. So there's an academic side in the research, which I do that as well. I teach at Texas A&M. And then 
the applied side though, I help people in business of all kinds and sizes from around the world to be able to understand how to better communicate with people and how their brains really work, again, instead of how we think they should. And in that process, of course, because financial services and credit unions specifically are such a core part of my background and I have a real understanding having been inside of a credit union uh, that I know what it's like to be there and understand some of the dynamics within the organizations and regulatory stuff and all of those concerns to be able to really help people in the credit union space to apply these learnings from brain science. So as you said, what makes this this field or these fields actually so exciting is, is that they're both virtually brand new disciplines and, and they're sciences. And maybe you can get into that a little bit too, but how does behavioral economics differ or integrate behavioral psychology? Can you talk a little bit about that and how, and how they're new? Sure. So, I mean, behavioral psychology uh, is uh, one of the foundational areas within behavioral economics. So we have neuroscience, economics, again, behavioral psychology, other organizational psychology, you know, lots of disciplines that come together to be able to just better understand behavior and the brain and that processing information. And so something that's important for people to be able to know, because even though we all have brains, we don't really intuitively understand how they work. They don't, again, do what we think they should. And our subconscious processing is doing the vast majority of anything that we're thinking about or deciding on a day-to-day basis. So one of my favorite stats on this is to think about how many decisions you make in an average day. So if you think about yesterday, you know, do you have a guess of maybe how many decisions you made? Um, it's like, yeah, I should know because I re- read it in your book. It's like, it's it's like we make like 67,000 in a minute or something like that, isn't it? Something- oh, oh. <laughs> Thank- thankfully, it's not quite that extreme, but, <laughs> uh, but we actually make 35,000 decisions every single day. But what I think what you're looking at is that our subconscious brain can process 11 million bits of information per second. And it's constantly evaluating a huge amount of information to help us make those 35,000 daily decisions. And so, when we think about communicating to other people, we like to think that, you know, my logical conscious brain is communicating to your logical conscious brain and we're all good and people will do what they're supposed to. But actually, because the vast majority of decision making is done by the subconscious and it uses these rules that may seem a little bit off to the conscious brain, even though there's a reason why subconscious is using them, it's important to understand those rules so we can better predict behavior communicate with people in a way that feels easier and more streamlined. So my first book is What Your Customer Wants and Can't Tell You, which of course in the credit union space is members, right? And then my second book is What Your Employees Need and Can't Tell You. And that book is looking at internal communication, understanding change, being a strong manager, helping to develop teams. And so, you know, they're very, very many aspects and ways that we can be applying the behavioral sciences into any organization. And, you know, so far, my books are looking at that customer side and then the employee change management side. So the conscious and the unconscious, it's amazing. I guess 
it's a, they can also be broken down into like system one and system two. I don't want to get too deep into this, but do you want to explain that a little bit too? Sure. Yeah. So within the field of behavioral economics and within behavioral science, uh, there are a couple of key researchers that were really foundational in the forming of the field. One of them is Daniel Kahneman. The other is Amos Tversky. And they created a ton of the, you know, the research that helped to shape the field, including this idea of our brains being run on two systems, system one and system two. Uh, I call them subconscious and conscious because it's easier for people to be able to, to grasp them. But system one is that automatic subconscious quick processing. Uh, and system two is the conscious processing, the slower, uh, more manual process of our brain. And so this concept is one that earned Daniel Kahneman the Nobel Prize. And it's something that is really, really critical to the behavioral sciences for, for everyone. And for anyone who reads my books and listens to my podcast, you'll learn there's another really great way to think about the brain, which is uh, from a psychologist out of NYU. He recommends you think about the brain like a person riding an elephant. So the conscious, logical rider has a plan, knows where it wants to go. This is our system too. It knows what's up and the best way to get there. Unfortunately, it's at the mercy of that subconscious elephant, that system one. And so if the elephant wants to sit down or run in another direction, really the rider is at the mercy of the elephant because you can't push or pull or logic it to go in the direction you want. But instead, if you understand what motivates the elephant and communicate to it in that way, you can get to where you're looking to go. And that's really how you know, what all of behavioral economics is about. And so one commonality in both books, and, I, and, I, and that's kind of what I was getting at with the two systems, is, and you mentioned this, is that the role, is the role that these little habits or micro moments play in our lives every day. And in your second book, what, what our employees can't tell us is if we can change these habits and these little micro moments, we can really, we can really, affect a great amount of change in, in within our organizations. Do you want to talk to a little bit about that where it's not necessarily simple or easy, but, but it's, it's very attainable? Yeah, so really with this would be to take a moment and think about change in itself. When we think about change in an organization, we think about big stuff right? We've got a CEO retiring. We've got a merger. We've got a core conversion, right? Something really big that should be the only type of thing that impacts behavior, something that requires a project, a team, right? Or the project management department to step in. But when it comes to the way that our brains process and think about change, it really is in those micro moments, thinking again about those 35,000 decisions that we make every single day. And that can be where we set our mug on where it is on the table, how we get into work today. Those those little tiny things make a big difference. And so if we have people moving desks or there's construction outside of the building or someone's having to train a new employee or there is even just a tiny adjustment in a system of the way that we've always done things as far as our brains are concerned, it can have an impact of bogging down that conscious 
processing to where the subconscious has to step up and handle more. We already talked about the 11 million bits that the subconscious can process per second. The conscious brain can only do about 40 compared to those 11 million. So really, really bad ratio there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so when we revert to the subconscious, so it makes decisions based on predictability and rules of thumb, things that have worked well in the past. That status quo, what we're familiar with, makes it so any sort of change is outside of that realm and can feel bad to someone, even if it's you know, very objectively a better scenario for them or a better uh, situation, we can look at it and say, everyone should love this. And then we present it and everyone rebels against it. It's not because of the change. And my framework for change, which is in the book, is called It's Not About the Cookie because change isn't about change. It's about the way that change is presented that makes it to whether people are going to feel good about it or they're going to really hate it. And it's not that we want to get away from the rules or the habits. It's just understanding them so we can know which ones to leverage and have work in our favor to help make that change in this case, be more receptive and something people are excited about. Exactly. Exactly. And another one, do you want to talk a little bit about what priming is and how that can influence our behavior too? Yeah, so uh, priming is one of the many concepts of behavioral economics, those rules that the brain uses when it's making decisions. And in this case, priming is that something that happens just before a decision is very impactful on the choice that we end up making and how we feel about things. Uh, so there are some interesting you know, studies that were done looking at, uh, you know, if someone held an iced coffee versus a hot coffee and then were talking about uh, and reviewing someone's personality and then they were to say how they felt about that person. Those who held the iced coffee in something totally unrelated for just a few moments rated the person as being much more cold, distant, and difficult than those who held the hot coffee. People who saw a flash of an Apple logo were much more creative in an upcoming task than those who saw an IBM logo, even though it was so quick, they couldn't really consciously register it because of our associations that the brain makes toward those different brands. When you had the smell of coffee, like freshly ground coffee or roasting coffee at the gas station, at the pumps, it increased the likelihood that people were buying coffee at the gas station by 300%. Their sales went up. These primes, which are very closely tied into all of the senses, are things that, again, impact our behavior. In the case of change management, I talk about uh, the scent, you know, as we're drawing people in or really repelling them away, where popcorn is a really amazing scent when we go to the movies, right? We love that smell and it helps get us into a real mood and we get soda or whatever else. It's an experience. The flip of that, we've all been in a workplace environment where someone burnt a bag of popcorn, and it's all anyone can talk about for hours, right? Because that, <laughs> who did that? I bet that was Melina. She was reheating fish and broccoli last week, right? It's just the rumor mills get started and no one is productive for a long time because of that burnt popcorn. So when you look at your communication, 
you want to be asking, you know, is this coming off as burnt popcorn? Is this setting people up to be ready for whatever conversation is coming or maybe putting them on edge to where they're coming in ready for a fight? You know, I give an example in the book of a previous manager who I had gotten you know, an email from on a Thursday at 10 a.m. that says, we need to talk, be in my office at two, which is terrifying, the scariest thing ever, right? <laughs> when I finally got there after spending four hours stressing and reviewing every project I was working on and being ready to, you know, fight, the message was, hey, I'm going to be out of the office tomorrow and I'm putting you as the contact in my email. And that was it. That was the main thing to be communicated. So I lost hours of productivity in something that felt simple and quick at the time for my boss. And I came to learn that this was the way that this person communicated and I adapted to it. But if we think about ourselves as managers, all those little things we do to make things easier for ourselves, instead of thinking about the recipient, and sure, you know, maybe say five minutes in that process instead of writing a more thoughtful email. But those hours of productivity lost on my side because of the burnt popcorn of that email. And can you imagine if I was being called in because of some bigger change, something that I was going to be asked to do? There's no way I'm receptive to that. And so understanding those little things before the decision, before the conversation is really, really important in the way it's received. This goes back to what you originally said is we create all that in our subconscious. That goes back to your original point. And then the other point is we create all that, that burnt popcorn by ourselves. We create it in our minds. Yeah, for sure. It's, once you really start to learn about the brain, it's really amazing to see how much is, is actually created within our own skulls, I guess, in that's this what case, I'm right? Saying, yeah, that's <laughs> in the what way I'm that we have all of our processing. And the key is being aware of it. I mean, just being aware of it is really more than half the battle. Yeah. And we like to, again, the writer, that conscious area, we like to think that these things shouldn't matter. People should know that that's not what I meant. You, you hear that all the time, right? People should know I'm busy. I have good intentions. But the way that we internalize information, these rules of the brain are things that exist, whether you want them to or not. And if you can make just a slight adjustment to make it easier for people, you know, why wouldn't you? In in the new book, the What Your Employees Need and Can't Tell You, uh, the first, the last two chapters of part one are called Change is All About You and It Has Nothing to Do With You. <laughs> So in the change is all about you chapter, it's talking about this understanding that you can make little adjustments, thinking about there's so much that's empowering in realizing that if you just adjust the way you present information, it can make everything go easier and smoother, right? It can make everything better with really small tweaks that don't have to cost a lot of money. They don't have to take a lot of time. And actually, they end up saving a lot of time in the long run, which I talk about the how time pressure and stress and deadlines impact our brain's reactions to change. That's a big theme within the book. In this area, though, of how it has nothing to do with you is, you know, we've all heard the golden rule, right? Treat others how you like to be treated. 
Then there's the platinum rule, treat others how they would like to be treated, which is important. The problem is people are really bad at understanding what they want or how they're going to react to things, which is how behavioral economics helps us to know what people are most likely to do in a scenario and present information that's going to be most helpful for them in that way. One thing I wanted to touch on talking about how we don't understand how the brain works is that we we often think I guess we think of that our brain works like a a videotape recorder, but it, it doesn't. No. <laughs> Relationships are about memories. Do you want to talk a little bit about both those things and, and kind of how the memory works and how we build relationships on memories, kind of tie those two together? For sure. So memories are a funny thing. Like you were saying, we like to think that our memory is, you know, a video or a a photograph that sits somewhere in our, you know, filing cabinets of our brains and that when we pull them out, they are exactly a replica of what happened and we can retrieve that information. It is not correct. That's not how memory works. And semi-frustratingly about this is every time we retrieve a memory, we actually adjust it a little bit before it gets put back. And so if we think about things more and more, we're mishandling and misshaping, misremembering them more and more every single time to adapt to whatever our brain is trying to tell us and communicate. So we also have, uh, potentially people have heard of confirmation bias. That's something where when we go and look uh, for our brains like to prove that they're smarter, faster, stronger than everyone else, including the us of five minutes ago. And so we're constantly looking for information to support what we already believe. And then this has a focusing illusion problem. So if I believe that someone on my team is really difficult, you know, Steve is really hard to work with, right? Or whomever, right? So difficult. This is going to be a rough conversation. When I go into that conversation, I'm going to focus on anything that's happening in the communication that comes from Steve, not on a conscious level, but subconsciously. My brain is filtering for information to prove itself right in this scenario. And even if everyone else has great relationships with Steve, all I can pick up on are these bad things that show how difficult he is. Coming in that way, Steve then knows, same thing, that, man, my manager really hates me. She never listens to what I have to say. It's not even worth it. He's focusing on all the things that are going to be proving that right. So we can have completely different memories of an event or experience, and we can both be kind of having an accurate picture of what really happened. Uh, So again, We can shift the way that we think about things in our memories to help build new relationships, not focusing on what was bad and confirming that. But again, instead of saying, you know, Steve is difficult, can say Steve cares enough to ask great questions, like not thinking that questions are a bad thing. Steve is interested in whatever that is important for the team. And if I focus on that, it can help to create a new experience moving forward uh, for our team and the dynamics of how we work together. And then again, to know, it's important to note that your memory can be completely different from someone else's and you can both be right. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So why does any of this matter for credit unions? 
Well, credit unions are organizations made up of people, just like anybody else, like we said, in the people helping people space. And so when we are communicating with other humans, it's important to do that in the best way possible. Uh, One thing that I think is really interesting about credit unions and management roles. So at the beginning of the book, I talk about what it means to be a great manager. And there's some information from Gallup in there, uh, some statistics. But the the summary of this being, Gallup says that one in 10 people has the natural talent to be a great manager, only one in 10, and that over 80% of people that are currently managers, just across all types of organizations, they are not suited to be a great manager. They don't have the natural talent for it. And beyond that, so there's one person out of 10 that does have that natural talent, another two that can be trained, and the other seven out of 10 just should never be managers based on this old information of what it means to be training and understanding management and helping people to be better at supporting their teams. When you have organizations where you have Uh, in the credit union movement, you get people that love the movement and move their way up often because they've been in a role for a long time. They've been with the organization for a long time and they've earned that. Again, this is not unique to the credit union space, but it is definitely something you see a lot, right? So so so-and-so who um, has been a branch manager for a long time really loves marketing, so we're going to go ahead and let them be in the marketing department or whatever that happens to be and give them that opportunity, which is amazing and really something that should be embraced. But when people are leaving jobs because they're disengaged because they don't have great managers, that can be a problem and something where you have people leaving the industry and credit unions should be around. So giving everyone an ability that they can understand behavior and be able to make small adjustments to then be a great manager, whether they have the natural talent for it or not, I think is really important in an industry like the credit union movement. So one thing I wanted to note is that these books are both closely tied to your podcast, um, the Brainy Business Podcast. So they really are they're great. They're a great investment for credit unions credit union people that want to apply these concepts to their jobs. They're they're just wonderful investments. I I, I can't say that enough. But do you have any other advice for people who want to uh, apply these concepts to their jobs? Well, I mean, there's definitely a wealth of information amongst the the podcast, as you said, and the books. Uh, If you go to my website, thebrainybusiness.com, in addition to having links to all of that, I also have lots and lots. I'm constantly making freebie worksheets and accompanying PDFs and workbooks and things that are available for free for people to be able to learn more. Uh, And so being able to to go in and get that information. Uh, For anyone who does want to get a free chapter, Uh, You know, if you want to see, hey, do I really, is this book for me? Uh, Is this something I want? You know, I'd be happy to offer that up uh, for this audience. If they go to thebrainybusiness.com slash CUNA, C-U-N-A, they can go ahead and get either of the first chapters of either of my books for free to be able to check out and see if it's a fit. Yep, and I do think you'll love them. Uh, Melina Palmer, thank you very much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the CUNA News Podcast. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher Radio. 